We are continuing a sermon series that we've been in looking at the parables of Jesus, these wonderful stories that Jesus told that offer us these unique pictures of who Jesus is and what life with him is like for us, what life in his kingdom brings to our world. And so this morning we look to Luke uh, chapter 14. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? He said, he said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, they said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man who gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time, at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men were invited. Those men were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of this is God's word is absolutely true and given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. You know, eating food is one of the most irreducible and fundamental activities uh, that human beings do. One of the first sensations you experienced when you were born was hunger, and you cried until you were fed. You will eat uh, throughout your life at least three meals a day, hopefully. One day, your body will slow down, you'll stop eating, and you'll cease to live. Eating is a fundamental part of what it means to be human. Of course, in some ways, that does nothing to separate us from animals. Most animals eat uh, throughout their days. It's, it sustains them in their lives. But there's something unique about the human relationship with food, right? Human beings and all of God's creation are unique in the way that we turn consuming food into an art form, right? Combining the natural ingredients that God's given us into recipes, into delicious tasting food. We develop preferences for the kinds of foods that we enjoy. Cultures develop whole uh, culinary languages of the kinds of food that they eat and the ways that they eat them. The way that human beings approach food reveals something about us. It reveals something about us as individuals. It reveals something about a culture and what that culture values. You know, if you, uh, if you look back uh, on the segregated lunch counters that you see in pictures from the civil rights era, the way that those mealtimes were approached give us a picture, don't they? of what society at large was like during the Jim Crow era. That the way that we eat our meals and who we eat them with and our customs of eating show us a lot about ourselves and they show us a lot about our society. 
the way that we approach human relationships. With that in mind, I saw a news story this week that this week Google and Chipotle began experiments on the campus of Virginia Tech University where they attempted to, they're attempting to develop drones that will, develop, that will uh, drop a burrito using GPS on your front door. There's a video online of these drones coming in and a winch going down from the drone holding a little bag of burritos. Well, if the way that we eat reveals something about us as a people, I think this is about as good of a picture of life in America in 2016 as you can hope for. Try, try explaining any part of that sentence. Google and Chipotle are delivering burritos to you by drone. Try explaining any of that to your grandparents or to your great-grandparents. Right? It's, a, it's a whole new world that we live in. And what does it say about our society that the best of our technology is going to delivering thousands of calories by winch directly to your open mouth without you having to risk any human interaction in the process? without having to risk burning any calories, getting in your car and driving to a brick-and-mortar Chipotle. The way that we eat provides a window uh, into ourselves, into our souls, into our relationships, into our society. And so perhaps it's no surprise that Jesus in the Gospels seems to spend most of his time eating. He seems to spend most of his time at meals with people. One commentator on this chapter says that in the Gospels, Jesus always seems to be either headed to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. I think, yeah, that's, that's kind of my life, right? But he's always, always in and around food. Well, why? You know, he was called a glutton by his detractors in his own day. Is it just that Jesus wanted to eat? Is it just that he liked, was Jesus a foodie? Well, no, I think it's because what Jesus knew is that food, the ways that we eat, does provide a window into the ways that we relate to one another. It provides a window into the ways, even beyond that, the ways that we relate to God, the things that we believe to be true about the world that he's placed us in. And so this, this chapter 14 of Luke takes place entirely at one meal. It's an extended dinner scene of Jesus in the home of a Pharisee eating a meal. We didn't read the whole chapter, but here's, a, here's an overview of what Jesus was like as a house guest. So the first thing that he does in this meal is he heals a man on the Sabbath, a practice that provokes a controversy among the Pharisees who didn't believe that you should do any work on the Sabbath. And so all of a sudden, a religious argument breaks, down at the, breaks out at the meal. After that, Jesus goes on. He looks at the ways that at this table... He looks at the ways that the house guests are all vying for the best seat around the table, the ways they're trying to get the most um, prestigious seats, the seats closest to the, to the host, the seats closest to the important people. And Jesus immediately begins telling them about it. He says, you know, when you come to a party, you shouldn't try to get the best seats. You shouldn't be worried about elbowing people out of the way to get the best seats, the seats of honor. So he, so he, so he goes to critiquing the guests for the ways that they're enjoying the party. Then he turns his attention to the host. He says, you know another thing. When you, when you throw a party, don't just invite good-looking and important and wealthy people. Don't just, when you throw a party, don't just think about inviting the cool new neighbors that if you invite them, then maybe they'll invite you next month. No, your guest list is all wrong. When you throw a party, invite the down and out. Invite those who can never repay you. 
right? So he's critiqued the guests. He's critiqued the host. And then one person, I think awkwardly trying to change the subject, says, bursts it out, blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He tries to change it to this generally accepted religious kind of platitude. Yeah, won't they be blessed who one day feast with God? And Jesus says, yeah, but let me tell you what that feast is going to be like. And then he tells him this story. And he ends by saying, by referring to this party, by referring to this table as my banquet. So he critiques the guests, he critiques the host, he claims it's his party. I don't think Jesus was invited back uh, to very many dinner parties. But what he's doing, he starts out by critiquing their sociology, the ways that they relate to one another. And then he builds from that, from critiquing their their sociological relationships with one another, the ways that their relational life with others is divided, the ways that they build walls between themselves out of pride and arrogance. He goes from that to to saying, you know what, you'll never change your human relationships. You'll never change your sociology until you change your theology, until you change your vision of who God is and who's included in his kingdom, who's included at his table. And so he tells this incredibly rich story. And we're going to narrow our focus and look primarily at this parable, sometimes called the parable of the great banquet. We're going to look at the the main characters in it. We're going to look at the welcoming host, the desired guests, and the sent servants. The welcoming host, the desired guests, and the sent servants. First, in this parable, God is, is portrayed as a welcoming host. As a welcoming host. This is not a new metaphor. It's not a new image that Jesus dreams up. That throughout the pages of the Old Testament, God is presented as a welcoming and gracious host to his people. Right? In creation, God doesn't create Adam and Eve and then just spit them out into the world to live life on their own. No, what does he do? He builds a garden for them. A garden where they'll be provided for all their needs. A garden with with great fruit and protection. He places them in a garden because he's a gracious host. When he calls his people Israel out of Egypt, he provides for them even in the wilderness. He provides manna from heaven. One day, uh, birds just come and start falling from heaven so that they can have meat to eat in the desert. One day, uh, God provides water out of a rock so that they can drink in the desert. The God is a gracious host preparing a table even in the wilderness for his people. And then when he leads them into the promised land, It's described over and over again as a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that's abundant in its produce. God leads them into a land where he can host them, where he can provide for them, not meagerly, but richly. God is a welcoming host. And then in passages like the one that we read this morning is our call to worship. If you've got your bulletin, you've got it there at the very beginning from Isaiah 25. The prophet Isaiah, when he begins looking towards what that day will be like when the Messiah comes, when God sets all things right, what that day is going to be like, he says it's going to be like a feast. It's going to be like a feast on the mountain at the center of Jerusalem that God's going to welcome all people into a rich meal, into a party, that that is going to be a feast. That's what uh, the Pharisee who blurts out to change the subject, Blessed is the one who eats bread with God in the kingdom. He's referring to this picture that one day when the Messiah comes, it's going to be like a feast and God is going to be like a welcoming host. So when Jesus begins this story, 
when he says uh, that there was a man who threw a banquet, what he's saying essentially to these Pharisees is that that day, the day when the Messiah will set a banquet and provide richly for all people, that day is here and it's here now. And you're missing it. Your self-righteousness and your pride, your racism, your resistance to the Gentiles, all of that is keeping you from seeing what's happening right before your eyes, which is that the feast is starting, that the invitations are out, and that you're invited to come in. Right? They're so fixated on their, on their rules, so fixated on their religious pride, that even when Jesus miraculously healed a man at the dinner table, they began bickering over whether or not it was right to heal on the Sabbath. And so he's saying you're missing it. The invitations are out, and you're in danger of resisting them. You're in danger of being deaf to the invitation, and you're in danger of missing out on the feast that God has come to bring. You see, their pride had given them a limited vision of who God was. You know, uh, in Isaiah, we see this prophecy, this picture of God welcoming all people in to this great feast. But we know from some of the literature that came up between the Testaments that what happened in Israel was that the religious elites of Israel began in their writings and their teachings to limit the kingdom of God, to limit this feast. We have examples of, uh, of texts where they write, you know, in that day, in that feast, it's not going to be the Gentiles too. It's just going to be Israel. Only Israel is going to be invited. And then in the Qumran community, where we know that, uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from, if you've heard of that, we see pictures of saying, you know what, not even all of Israel is going to be invited. Only the Pharisees, only the righteous, only those who keep themselves pure are going to be invited to the feast. And so Jesus comes to critique their view of God. You see, they had a, an image of God that was primarily God as an exacting judge. That God's primary role was determining who's in and who's out. Who's righteous and who's unrighteous. Who's good enough and who's, who's not. Who's an insider and who's an outsider. And Jesus comes, and through the force of this story, what he says to them is, no. Before God is an exacting judge, God is a welcoming host. That God's primary orientation towards the human beings that he's created is as a welcoming host, inviting people into communion with himself. Right? You'll notice in this passage that God is a judge. Right? Where do we see the judgment come in? It's in verse 24. He says, for I tell you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Right? There does come a time in the story where God, the welcoming host, says that, you know what? Those who spurn my invitation, those who resist my grace, will find themselves on the outside. There really is a, there really is a, a, a moment that you can't cross back to receive the invitation. But first and primarily, God comes to us as a welcoming host, is one who invites us by his grace, by his mercy, into fellowship with himself, into relationship with him. You know, there's some, uh, there's some here with us. Some of you are, have been considering what life with God might be like for you. You've been listening to us preach, or me preach mostly. You've been experiencing life in this community, but you've, but you've also accumulated over the years Maybe decades of baggage, decades of preconceived notions about what God's like and what he wants for you. And in this story, Jesus shows us that the first way that God approaches you 
is as an inviting host. That he comes to you with an invitation to join him, to join God's very life, the very relationship that Jesus himself enjoys with God, the relationship of a child to his father. God says it's, it's a banquet that provides everything you could ever need. The deepest longings of your heart can be met there. What are you doing with that invitation that God presents, that God offers? Because he comes to you as a welcoming host. Secondly, if God is a welcoming host, then that means that every human being, all of us, the people that he created are God's desired guests. That we live our lives as those who are desired by God. Those with whom God wants to be in relationship. We see here in the story that Jesus sends out, or the, the, sorry, the master at the banquet, sends out invitations, inviting people to come to the party, to the banquet that he's set. You know, the, uh, the order of events here would have been familiar in Jesus' setting. You see, to throw a banquet was an expensive proposition. And so what would typically happen would be a wealthy person in the village, a wealthy benefactor would say, I'm going to throw a banquet. And he would send out the equivalent of a save-the-date card. He would send out an initial invitation saying, please join me uh, for this banquet. And people would reply saying, yes, we'll be able to make it. We'll be able to come to the party. The reason that this was, was so important was that resources in this world, in this agrarian economy, were so scarce that the host would have to decide how much provision to make. Right? Is, it just gonna, is he going to have four or five people there that he can get by with you know, maybe serving a chicken and that being enough to serve everybody? Is it going to be more people that he needs to go and, and, and slaughter a goat so that he can feed a larger group? Or is he going to need a cow? Is he going to need several cows? What, what amount of their precious resources and crops and livestock are they going to have to sacrifice in order to provide enough food to feed this banquet? And so it was a very big deal that if you said you were going to go to the party, if you said, yes, you can count on me to be there, that then when everything was killed and ready, when the, when the banquet was ready and the, and the servants came to say, come on, join us at the party, for you at that point to say, eh, actually, I'm not going to be able to make it, was not only a colossal waste, but it was an affront to the host. It was a slap in the face to the host who'd made the provision. Only the best of excuses could do in that setting. Only the most dire of emergencies were acceptable in that moment. And what's clear from this round of invitations that go out is that these, uh, these excuses that are made are incredibly hollow. Uh, they are the equivalent of getting turned down for a date because a girl tells you she's got to wash her hair, <laughs> right? Or no, I can't, can't make it. I've got, a, you know, I've got a haircut. I've got to shave my legs. I've got something I got to do. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a hollow excuse that says, no, I really don't want to go. Right? One man says that, no, you know what, I just bought a field, and so I can't make it. Commentators tell us that, that nobody in the ancient world purchased a field without walking over every inch of it. In the contract of a sale, they had to outline where every tree was located, where every well was found. This is, a, this is an empty excuse. Nobody did this. Another person says, I just bought a yoke of oxen and I have to go inspect them. And we're told that nobody, nobody ever would buy, a, so much was the investment that went into buying ox that nobody would ever buy them without first 
looking over them and making sure they had a clean bill of health. So it's another hollow excuse. Another man says, I've just acquired a wife, so I can't make it. That's an interesting, guys, I don't suggest you putting it that way when describing your wedding. <laughs> I've acquired a wife. Um, but it's a totally vague excuse. It's not, I just got married yesterday. It's not, I've got a wedding on the same day. It's like, ah, no, you know, we just got married. It's going to be really hard to get out. So these are hollow excuses. These are, these are an affront to the dignity of the man who's issued the invitation. And so then, what does the, the master do? I think the people are thinking, you know what? We're the desired guests. We're the ones he wants there. If we say no, then he's going to be ashamed. He's going to be humiliated, and the party certainly cannot go on without us, right? Surely the party will not go on without us. And yet the master says, oh, no, here's what we're going to do. Go out first and bring in the blind and the crippled and the lame. And the servants go out, and they issue the second round of invitation, and there's still more room. So he says, go out of the city. Go out into the highways and hedges, into the fields, and welcome everybody you see to come in. You know, this is a major uh, theme in the Gospel of Luke. It has to do with this idea that many who, we, who the whole world expects to be insiders are going to be found to be outsiders. That many of those who are most assured of their own goodness, many of those who are most certain of their own righteousness, who are convinced that they do the right things, th think the right things, believe the right way, many of them are missing out on the banquet of the kingdom because they refuse to enter into the invitation of God's grace. And many of those who we'd look at as to be outsiders, many of those who've made a mess out of their lives, many of those who are homeless, many of those who in their, in their very bodies bear the effects of the fall and who are crippled are going to be welcomed into the kingdom. And history is going to show that they are the insiders. They're God's desired guests. You know, it's interesting about what what keeps people from entering in, what keeps these people from entering in in every case is an attachment to the domestic concerns of life. It's looking at their, their things, even signs of worldly wealth, owning a field, owning oxen, being married, these, these good things that they've been given in life, these blessings in life have come to preoccupy them to the point that they don't enter into the kingdom. Right? I think it's a picture of what Jesus means when he, when he says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right, That those of us who are so attached to the stuff of this world, to our homes, to our jobs, to our wealth, to our reputations, to our possessions, many times it's, it's, it's that our hands are so full of these things, our souls so preoccupied with these things, that we resist the invitation of God. But it's the poor in spirit, those who look at their own lives and recognize that they have nothing. Even if they have a great deal of material possessions, they look at those things and go, oh, that's, that's nothing compared to what I need. It's nothing compared to the, the desires of my soul, the needs of my heart. It's the poor in spirit who are welcomed in. You know, this story plays itself out in the world over and over again. This story of the outsiders coming in while the insiders are too full of their own stuff to admit their need and to come in. It gets played out over and over. I think this story gives us an insight into why in the West, in places like America, Christians spend a lot of our times wringing our hands 
over why does it seem like Christianity is shrinking? Why does it seem like the church is struggling and secularism is booming? Why does it seem like if we look all around us, we're losing and we're worried? While all in the rest of the world around us, we are literally blind sometimes to the fact that we're seeing the greatest century of Christian expansion since the days of Jesus. To see that more people are coming into the kingdom of God. They don't speak English. They don't look like us. They don't live in big, nice houses like many of us do. But in what, what sociologists call the two-thirds world, life outside of the first world of America and Western Europe and Japan and the industrialized West, that in the rest of the world, the kingdom is growing like wildfire. That the church is flourishing. The, the, the communist government kicked the church out of China. And then a few decades later, when we finally start to be able to send missionaries back, you look and you go, oh, man, there are millions upon millions of Chinese Christians worshiping in secret. And the church is doing just fine. It's thriving. Well, what's happening? It's this same story. That while many of us in the West are too preoccupied with our own bank accounts, with our own security, with our own comfort, with our own wealth, many of the poor in spirit are receiving the kingdom with joy and thriving in Christ's church. You know, I think this is true in each one of our lives, right? I think for many of us in the big picture, our preoccupation with life in this world, with the stuff of this life, makes receiving Jesus' invitation uh, very, very difficult. We might think that we have our lives pretty well under control. We might think that we're, if we're looking successful and things are going well, we have no need for him. And yet if we believe the biblical diagnosis, that each of us have a sin problem that needs to be dealt with, then only the invitation of Jesus can offer a solution to the deepest hunger of your heart. So for many of us, the, our preoccupation with the stuff of this life keeps us from entering into the kingdom. But I think for many of us, many of us who, who have entered, many of us who at one point in our lives cried out to Jesus and said, I am so impoverished, I am so sinful, I am so guilty that I'm without hope aside from you. Many of us who begin a relationship with Jesus on a daily basis, what prevents us from entering into communion with God, what keeps us from entering into a deep and rich fellowship with him, is quite frankly just the other stuff of life. It's not that any of us ever set out to say, you know what, I think, I think I'm good and I can forget Jesus. No, what starts to happen is the alarm starts to ring at 6 a.m. and you've got to get dressed for work and you've got to get kids out the door. And then you start worrying about making ends meet, and you start working more, more hours and longer hours. You start to get stressed about your relationships. You start to get stressed about your bank accounts. You start to get stressed about your homes. And all of a sudden, the attachments of this life begin to crowd out our desire for Jesus, our desire to spend time with him, to rest in him. And yet what we learn in this parable is that it's not fundamentally our desire for God that's the foundation of our communion with him. But what? It's his desire for us. That we are his desired guests. This is, this is the foundation of a Christian view of prayer. Right? It's not that, that God desires just to hear us say what we need so he can give us what we need, although we know that God does hear our prayers and he gives us what we need. 
It's not just so that we can pray, so that certainly not so that we can pray so that God looks at us and thinks that we're good Christians and gives us good lives. No, the foundation for a life with God in prayer is the conviction that we're his desired guests, that he longs for you, that he desires you, that at great cost to himself, at the cost of his own son, that he provides a way to invite you into communion with himself. And so we are God's desired guests. And then finally, the other characters in this story are the sent servants. You know, I think we find our place in this story. The church finds its place in this story, not only as God's desired guests, but also as his sent servants. Right? Because something happens to you when you recognize your own poverty of spirit, when you recognize the incredible banquet that God sets before you in Christ, when you realize that you're a beggar who stumbled into a banquet, something happens to you that you begin to want to welcome others into the banquet with you. You begin to want to extend this open invitation to the feast of the kingdom to everyone you meet. I think that's ultimately what Jesus critiques the Pharisees for. Right? It's not just that they were missing their own invitation to the banquet but that it's when they looked at the people that Jesus spent time with, when they looked at the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes, when they looked at the blind and the lame and these people who, were, who all of a sudden came stumbling into the kingdom of God, instead of celebrating that, they said, oh, no, no, not them. Right? They, I've been working hard for God as long as I can remember. I've been praying three times a day. I've been fasting. I've been doing all the right things. I've worked hard to get my admittance into the kingdom. These people don't get in for free. So it wasn't just that they couldn't receive it. They had no desire to go out and to welcome others to come into the feast, to come in to the banquet. But Christianity, the Christian mission, is about an open table. It's about an open invitation into the kingdom of God that we receive as guests and that we extend as servants. You know, this is why, do you know what one of the central missionary strategies of the church has been for hundreds of years, going on 2,000 years now, what one of the central missionary strategies of the church has been? It's not been tracks and flyers, right? It's not been door hangers, right? It's not been confrontational evangelism, although that's, at times, God blesses it. The, one of the central forces of Christian mission in the world has been hospitality. Hospitality. You know, one of the things that we can do is we find ourselves living in the post-Christian West. And we seek to look at how are we going to evangelize? How are we going to seek to live as faithful witnesses in the post-Christian West? One of the things that we can do is look at the pre-Christian West and go, okay, well, how was the West won? How did Europe become converted from paganism to Christianity? And you know what the, the main driving force of that story is? It's Christian hospitality. It's, it's largely Christian monastics, Christian monks and nuns who went into scary places with people who believed scary things and threatened to kill them, building churches and building countercultural communities that began to welcome people into them. For about, for about a thousand years, from about 4,000, I mean, from about 400 to about 1,400. If you were a pilgrim, if you were journeying your way through Europe, 
and you were hungry and you were thirsty and you were scared because you were surrounded by barbarians and you were looking for a meal for your belly and a place to rest your head, you were looking for one thing. Do you know what you were looking for? You were looking for a Christian church. Because when you found that church, you knew that you could go into that place and they would give you a soft bed and a warm meal and they would invite you in to their very life and shelter you for an indefinite period of time until you were ready to move. It was out of this movement of Christian hospitality that the modern hospital, orphanage, and hostel were developed. It was the Christian idea that we should care not only for the healthy, but for the sick, not only for the well and the whole, but those who are orphans, not only for those who could repay us, but those who could never pay us back. That was the central missionary force, the central impulse that gathered people in to Christ's church. Friends, the truth is that our neighbors are still lonely. Many of them are still doubting. Many of them are still on a journey. But largely, they've stopped looking uh, to fill themselves at our table. They've stopped looking to us to give them a warm bed. They've stopped looking to us to give them a place to lay down their burdens. Because somewhere along the line, they learn that the church isn't a safe place. It's not a hospitable place. It's not a place of joyful welcome. But one of the things that I most long for for our church is to be a church that recovers hospitality. A church of warm and loving welcome. Not as a church growth technique. Right? Not because 78% of people join a church because somebody invited them. That's great. Please invite your friends. But a church that extends the hospitality of Jesus because we've been welcomed by the hospitality of Jesus. A church that knows that we love the stranger because God loved us when we were strangers. A church that feeds the hungry because Christ feeds us weekly when we gather at his table. Right? If Jesus is to be believed, then there's a meal at the very center of the Christian life. There's a meal, there's a feast, there's a banquet at the very center of the Christian worship service. That's why we have a table that we come to every week with a reminder that we're invited there not because of our own goodness, not because we deserve it, not because, not because we're good enough, but because Jesus' invitation is an invitation to a feast. It's an invitation to a banquet. Now, grape juice and wafers may not feel like a feast, right? It feels like a Lunchables without the meat and cracker, or meat and cheese, right? But by faith, we look at that and say, you know what, this points us beyond itself, to a deeper reality, a reality that all of history is moving towards a feast, towards a reality that Jesus' own broken body and shed blood is for us, his death and his life is for us, life with God, makes a way to be with him. And it's a reminder, a physical reminder, that we can see and touch and taste that he loves us. British uh, food writer Nigel Slater, he's a, he's a chef and a blogger and a food, food writer. In his memoir, uh, which he called Toast, it's basically a story of his heart's connection with food over a lifetime. And in this book, he says that he remembers when he thinks back on his mother's kisses as a child. He says that my mom's kisses were like marshmallows. He says, I always knew anytime I felt a marshmallow, 
and touched it to my cheek. I felt the softness of my mom's lips. I felt the familiarity and comfort and warmth of her love. Nigel Slater's mom died when he was nine years old. His father, every day for the rest of his life, for the rest of his childhood, placed two marshmallows on his bed before he'd go to sleep. And he'd take the marshmallows and he'd touch them to his cheek. And he'd remember the kiss of his mother. No longer there in person to give him her love. No longer there to sing a bedtime song to him. No longer there to hold him in her arms or kiss him. He could take this, this tangible thing, this thing that he could smell and touch and put to his, his cheek, and he'd remember. He'd remember, that's what my mother's love feels like. That's a physical reminder of love. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to us. And he said, do this. Keep doing it. Do it for the year after I'm gone. Do it for the second year after I'm gone. Do it for 2,000 years. And when you taste it and you touch it and you feel it and you remember my broken body and my shed blood, you receive a physical reminder that I love you and I've given myself for you. Let's pray.